This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon. I'm Cathy Wilcox and I'm pleased to be introducing uh, from the front line uh, a session with, um, with an artist from New York who you will be hearing about. Now, first of all, um, you probably don't need reminding, but just in case, just so I've said it, make sure your phones are on silent um, so that nobody is disturbed. Um, feel free to tweet if you want to at, uh, well, not at, hashtag Fody. Um, the session's being recorded, so there will be time for some questions at the end, I, I expect. Uh, so you will be, um, you'll have to raise your hand and um, a microphone will come to you for you to um, ask questions later. Um, so, it's my pleasure to introduce an artist and journalist who has some fundamental drivers in common with me but who has also taken as different a career path as could be imagined to find herself drawing on politics, war and society. She has, to my thinking, an impeccable degree for a political artist as the daughter of an illustrator mother and an academic Marxist father, influences which could hardly have left her indifferent to the physical and political world around her. Born in New York, she had a compulsion to draw that sustained her through an uninspiring school life and drove her to seek her own life education in travel, personal encounters and, at times, dangerous adventures. From naked modelling to burlesque nightclub artist, she became politicised by her life in New York through witnessing the 9-11 attacks, observing and protesting the US's subsequent disastrous adventure into the Middle East, drawing and reporting the Occupy Wall Street movement, Guantanamo Bay Prison, Abu Dhabi's migrant labour camps and the war zones of the Middle East. For me, her work reminds me of the kind of drawing you do as a child, where you simply have to draw. There is no filter of doubt or needing a reason. You'll see it, it's, it's uh, ubiquitous around, the, around the, uh, the festival, as you may have seen. There's a lot of, um, a lot of this artist's drawing uh, to be seen. Um, it's as natural as breathing, and I can totally identify with her love of line. The mere fact of living and observing life has provided her with the reason and, and with the reason and supplied the content to her drawing. She's currently a contributing editor of Vice Media, has written for publications including the New York Times, Paris Review, and Vanity Fair. Her work is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, which must mean that she's really made it as an artist. Um, she's recently published a memoir, which I'm working my way through at the moment with fascination, Drawing Blood, which gives details of her fascinating trajectory. Um, that book is available and, will, and she will be there for signings in the Western Foyer later on. She is also co-writing and illustrating a book about life in the, um, in the Syrian civil war. Please welcome, from the front line, Molly Crabapple. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I hope I can live up to that. Before starting, I want to acknowledge that the Festival of Dangerous Ideas is being held on the traditional lands of the Karagul clan of the Eora people, and I wish to acknowledge them as the land's traditional custodians. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the elders from other communities who may be here today. I wish to acknowledge that this land is and has always been a place of art. Art that word so fragile and so powerful. Art, a refuge that is as small as a sketchbook. Art, a sledgehammer that can break down walls. This talk is front called From the Front Lines, so I'll start by telling you about an artist that lives on just such a front line, the front line of the refugee crisis, which is the war by the rich world to keep the citizens of the poor world from coming in. This drawing is by a man named Ali, who uses the pseudonym Eden Fish. He is Iranian, he is a refugee, he is 24 years old, and this year he received the Cartoonist International Rights Network's Award for Courage in Cartooning. And he spent the last three years, one-seventh of his life, in the detention center on Manus Island. This is some of his work. 
At Australia's detention centres, inhumanity is the official policy, and at the cost of $430,000 a year per refugee, Australia creates an artificial hell, something that exists to break people like Ali so that more refugees from, or more migrants from the poor world don't come. Ali lives in a wasteland of tents surrounded by razor wire. Each day is the same as the last. And because Manus is largely off-limits to journalists, Ali, Eaton Fish's work, provides a rare glimpse of life on that island. It's cost him, and as his profile has grown, Eaton Fish has been beaten, harassed, and denied food. Yet we live in the age where the world is connected, and Ali, Eaton Fish's drawings have made their way onto the stage of the Sydney Opera House, even as he himself is still trapped in the detention centre on Manus Island. Like all detention centres, Manus is built to erase those inside of it, but art is a slippery thing, and each of Ali's drawings is a defiant assertion of his existence. Each of them asks the viewer, what can art do now? Is art sharp enough to cut through razor wire? Is art strong enough to bash down worlds? Can art change the world? I ask myself these questions, too. Since I was four years old, I've drawn pictures. Art is my obsession, and art is my dream. Art is my air and blood. My sketchbook is how I consume the world. Over the last four years, I've also worked as a journalist. More than that, I have fused art and journalism together, and I've taken my sketchbook around the world to prisons, refugee camps, and war zones, documenting the work of people of astounding courage, living in the worst possible circumstances. Now, when I sit at a refugee camp, I feel like I have to make the case for art. What is the point of all this? What is the point of making pictures in a world so full of hell? I'll start by talking about my own journey as an artist. I was a bad kid at school and a bad student. I spent much of my high school in a punishment called in-school suspension, which involved being locked in a small room and staring at the wall for eight hours. I dropped out of university to work as a go-go dancer and a low-rent naked model, and it was better training than any art school, or than journalism school might have been. Trouble is the best school for an artist. Nothing is more boring than someone who has spent their life obediently advancing by complying with the dictates of those in charge. Art meant many things to me, but the first thing it gave me was the privilege of seeing. To draw, you have to see things anew. You have to murder your stereotypes and do violence to your cliches. One of the most classical exercises in the world is drawing rumpled fabric. And what, why is this? Why do you draw rumpled fabric? Because when you draw that, your mind has nothing to fall back on. You have to see the fabric as it is. To see truly is drawing's first lesson. The second thing art gave me was it gave me a way to look back. Like many women, I started getting sexually harassed when I was 11. And as a protective measure, I learned to walk down the street with this blind, wall-like indifference. Drawing gave me the permission to look back. Later, as a model, my job was to be silent and look pretty. Working as an object taught me that there were no objects and subjects. No one is voiceless. There are just people who are deliberately ignored. By 2010, I was working as an artist chronicling New York's nightlife. I drew sex workers and performers, men and women as tough and glittering as diamonds. But I chafed against an artist's role. We were supposed to stay in our studios, churning out these increasingly polished versions of our last piece until we died. We were like Fabergé egg makers pretending to be revolutionaries. I longed for engagement in the world. At a time of infinite photographic images, I wanted to prove that art had something to say. Then 2011 happened. It was a year of these ecstatic uprisings around the world, and so many of them are broken and betrayed now, but it's important to remember still how they were five years ago. In 2011, Occupy Wall Street set up camp a block from my apartment. 
I started doing posters and sketching protesters. To see my art on the street felt more vital than to see it in any gallery. I took the skills that I honed in nightclubs and I began applying them to documenting protest. They were the same skills, seeing truly and drawing fast, realizing that everyone is at once a subject and objects. Portraits obsessed me. What did it mean to capture a face through a medium as archaic as drawing? Art in New York suffers because of the idea that an artist can only do one thing. But the proper domain of art is everything. Nothing is off limits to an artist. An artist can capture beauty and pain, sex and war, soldiers and dancing girls. I see this in all the artists I love. This, this is Otto Dix. Dix was mostly known as the painter of decadent, dancing girl-filled Weimar Berlin. But he was also a young machine gunner in World War I. Dix's memories of the wars haunted him. He drew the destruction, the faces mutilated by skin grafts, the gas masks, the young people who'd lost their legs. He also drew the glittering capital of post-war Germany, the cabarets and the sex workers and the bankers gorging themselves. For Dix, there was no distinction. His art was big enough to encompass the world. In 2012, I got arrested at a protest. The art spurred me to do journalism because, for once, I wanted to talk clearly. And while art might be able to whisper, writing, writing can scream. From then on, I started doing more and more work about prisons. And my first big assignment as an investigative journalist was covering the prison camp at Guantanamo Bay in the summer of 2013. That summer, when I first went to Guantanamo, Obama had recently announced his plan to close the base, but at that time, 153 men were indefinitely detained without charge. Over 100 were hunger-striking. Of these, dozens were being shackled to a chair twice a day and having a tube shoved through their nose and into their stomach and a can of protein shake then pumped through the tube. The guards bragged that they let them choose their flavor. According to the chief prosecutor, only 20 men detained at Gitmo were even chargeable. Chargeable? Chargeable with anything, any crime. And, and the rest? They were mostly sold to America by Afghans eager for bounties, and all of them had been tortured. Now they were there, waiting, because America would not admit that it had done something wrong. Guantanamo was built on erasure. The military would not speak these men's names it would not show their faces. To justify a crime that massive, they needed to make those detainees disappear. They needed to be boogeymen in orange jumpsuits, not husbands, fathers, sons, not men with favorite soccer teams or back pains or loves or, loves or grievances or possibly legitimate hates. In Guantanamo, I used my art to draw around censorship, to show the prison and the force-feeding chair. But most importantly, to show the individual men when the military censored me, I made it explicit. Forbidden to draw the soldiers, I gave them death masks. Forbidden to draw the prisoners, during the seven minutes I had to see them through a one-way mirror, I scribbled their faces black. Then I drew the men from their Red Cross photos. It was drawing to claw back the disappeared. Because prisons generally ban cameras, they make a natural subject for art, for illustration. And some of the most classic illustration has been done around prisons. During World War II, the American government interned uh, between 100 and 120,000 Japanese Americans. The celebrated illustrator Mine Akubo was one of them. Mine spent two years at an internment camp in the Utah desert and made 2,000 drawings that she would later publish as a book. Her drawings showed the guards, they showed the lack of privacy, the daily roll calls, but they also showed people stripped of their homes, their businesses, and their purposes solely because of their race. Minea Kubo made intimate, pitiless portraits of daily life from the inside in ways that photos can't. Prisons and detention camps are traditionally some of the hardest places to document. War zones are different. By 2018, over one-third of humanity is projected to own a smartphone, and photo cameras are ubiquitous in war. 
Militants, civilians, NGOs, governments, every single person on every single side of a current war is likely to have a camera phone and they're likely to use it to document their life. The Syrian civil war in particular has been a war that has been documented through every angle, from every perspective. In this environment of ubiquitous images, what is the place of drawing? What does art have left to say? These are from a collaboration I did, one of the ones of which I'm most proud. It's a collaboration with an extraordinary young journalist living in Raqqa. Marwan Hisham had just graduated with an English literature degree when ISIS occupied his hometown. Risking execution and arrest, he continued to tweet and then report on life under their rule. He reported about the executions, the arrests, and the destruction of culture, but also the quotidian realities of life under a religious fundamentalist and foreign occupation. Marwan sent me photos of daily life in Raqqa, and I drew from them. I drew the faces that were blocked out from advertisements because ISIS considers it idolatry. I drew kids digging through the trash for scraps. I drew Raqqa's famous clock tower. ISIS had beheaded the statues on top. Later, Marwan and me worked together for Mosul. He sent me photos of that city, including this one of a shop by a Christian that had been confiscated. The, uh, the noon is to mark his religion. Like the in internet itself, art defies censorship. In 2015, Marwan and I repeated our project in Aleppo. Aleppo is one of the world's oldest cities. Marwan had lived there for 12 years. It was the place he went to university. In 2012, its eastern half was uh, taken by anti-Assad regime rebels. This half is now home to an estimated 300,000 people. It's been mostly reduced to rubble by the constant government bombings. The regime in Russia used their planes to target markets and hospitals, and water and power have been cut off. Neighborhoods on the front lines have become death traps, with snipers on both sides targeting civilians. This is all common knowledge, and yet the world has become numb to the Syrian war, except for that one time a year when a picture of a dead or traumatized child is in a photo that's aesthetically pleasing enough to satisfy Western sensibilities, and then people feel very bad about it. When Marwan and I tried to work together, we tried to show the human life that was going on in spite of the worst and most brutal circumstances. We tried to show defiance in the face of a world that seemed to have conspired to burn this country. In the West, the Syrian war tends to mean two things, ISIS and refugees. Millions of Syrians are currently refugees. While many Western countries, like my own, uh, panic about taking a few thousand, the vast majority of these Syrians live in neighboring countries like Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan. Many live in camps in squalid conditions. They live amidst dust and tents with few schools. Since funding for Syrian refugees has been... Has, since funding for Syrian refugees has been slashed... Their rations have been slashed with them. And as the conflict drags on, their hope for a dignified future shrinks. And it's no wonder that hundreds of thousands have risked their lives getting on rubber life rafts to Europe. This fall, I had the honor of being invited by Doctors Without Borders to document their work in Iraqi Kurdistan at a refugee camp called Domiz. This camp was not one of the worst ones. It was run by UNHCR, and it was home to 40,000 mostly Kurdish Syrians. Over five days, I drew Dr. Sat Border's maternity clinic where they helped about 600 mothers give birth in the first half of the year, as well as their mental health work. But as I worked, the Syrian refugee crisis was dominating the news. Countless refugees would start their journey in Domiz. In collaboration with the MSF, I drew portraits of some of these families. I sat with them and I interviewed them. The families that lived in Domiz may have been born in villages in the Kurdish parts of Syria, but many of them spent their adulthoods in the great cities of Aleppo and Damascus. I met an aeronautics engineer and the former owner of a chain of souvenir shops, 
a high-end waiter and a graphic designer who built a small studio in which he painted women representing Kurdish freedom. Countless doctors, nurses, and community health workers at MSF were themselves refugees in Domiz. I visited eight families that were planning to make that trip to Europe. Though each of their stories were different, each of those visits began in the same way. A young person would brew us coffee that was served in these frail, lovely cups. One of the parents would say that they had made the decision to leave. They knew the risks. They read the news, of course. Same news as we read. Some of them had neighbors that had drowned in the Aegean. They'd tell stories of selling their possessions to afford smugglers' fees, of following cousins across Europe via messages on WhatsApp, of asylum applications, of daughters who wanted to be doctors, and of sons who missed their soccer teams in Kamishlu. And as they spoke, I alternated between drawing them and writing down their words. I asked one woman what she'd bring with her to Europe. She looked at me, smirking slightly at what an idiot I was. Uh, as a souvenir, I asked to remember. I left all my memories in Syria, she answered. For all of its importance, the word refugee is a flattening one. It strips individuality away, and it, bears, it brings to mind instead these images of these huddled, weeping masses. Refugee evokes pity, and pity is a corrosive thing. In her essay, We Refugees, the philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote, We fight like madmen for private existences with individual destinies. Arendt, who was a refugee from the Nazis, knew exactly of what she spoke. When these families decided to take that trip to Europe, they were choosing many things, but one of them was an individual destiny. They would not wait passively intense for geopolitics to decide their fate. They would take matters into their own hands. Theirs was a longing to live. And I tried to draw them to show that. Now, because drawing has such a visceral impact, artists have been targeted by authoritarians around the globe. The Syrian cartoonist Ali Ferzat had his hands broken by the regime early in the revolution, and Hitler was actually so incensed by the mean-spirited cartoons British cartoonists did of him that he had a hit list that he was going to do right when he conquered their island. Iranian cartoonist Atena Fargadani spent nearly two years in jail uh, for protesting anti-birth control policies by drawing a bunch of government ministers as like donkeys and goats and chimps. Artists working in a documentary capacity are just as dangerous. In 1943, over three million Indians starved to death in a man-made famine in Bengal that was enforced by the British, the British occupation. Uh, the Indian artist Chittaprasad toured the province with his sketchbook. He interviewed victims of the famine, and he drew the human toll. When he published his series, Hungry Bengal, It was immediately banned. The British seized and they destroyed all 5,000 copies. And the only reason that we have these is because Chitta Prasad managed to hide his last single copy in his house. There's a journalistic cliche called giving voice to the voiceless. And I despise it. This is generally a lie. There is no such thing as a voiceless person. We all come equipped with a voice, and when someone seems voiceless, they're usually being ignored or deliberately silenced. The stories that always attract me are the stories of smart people, smart people fighting against oppression, fighting against the odds. And these people, they could be prisoners in solitary confinement, blowing the whistle on abuse, or they could be workers organizing for their rights. One story that stayed with me for a long time was one I wrote about migrant construction workers in Abu Dhabi. They were mostly South Asian men who were building branches of the great museums there, the Louvre, the Guggenheim, for 14 hours a day for $200 a month. Articles about workers in the Gulf do a good job talking about the abuses they suffer. They talk about the debts that workers accumulate to labor brokers. They talk about how when these workers arrive in Abu Dhabi, their passports are confiscated, how they're paid less than they're promised. But they seldom talk about the workers' resistance. In a place where striking is punished by arrest and deportation, there are dozens of strikes a year in the construction industry in Abu Dhabi. I would never have been able to do this article without the help of one such worker, a young man who taught himself five languages 
and has helped the media cover the abuses in his city at massive risk to himself because he couldn't stand living in a place where because he was a blue-collar South Asian man, he was presumed to have no brain. I couldn't draw his face, so I drew him reading his favorite poet. In art as in life, pity is a corrosive force, and at best, pity inspires charity. But charity positions the giver above the person given to. It keeps power structures in place. And so I always ask people to reject charity and to choose solidarity instead. I spoke about how art can kill stereotypes. And this is more important now than ever. By seeing truly, clearly, and emphatically, we reject the hatred embodied by politicians like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage and Marine Le Pen. It's also the first step to overcoming the more polite and bureaucratic hatreds embedded in our courts, our prison systems, and even detention camps like Manus Island. This summer, I had a chance to illustrate both parts of that machine, the lurid and the covert, when I drew the Republican National Convention. Now, this was the opposite of the work that I had done in Dubai or in Kurdistan. Here, you had every single layer of unreality all piled on top of each other into a sort of ladder that uh, Trump, this tangerine Mussolini over here, would climb to become the president, or try to. You had 15,000 members of the media all piling on top of each other, desperately looking for violence, or at least a protest with a lot of people shouting at each other. Real activists mostly stayed home. They were put off by the tens of thousands of police that had, sh- that had been trucked in from all across the country and by the pre-convention visits by the FBI. The convention center was a mess of red, white, and blue bunting. Outside, a guy in a rubber Hillary Clinton mask waved a sign reading Trump or Tramp, while down the street, dudes with guns ostentatiously strapped to their thighs listened to right-wing conspiracy hosts, and the Westboro Baptist Church screamed homophobic nonsense till their lungs went out. I drew and I drew. I drew because it was like the carnival of the damned. I drew the people who were shouting, jail Hillary and bomb ISIS and build a wall and the protests and the counter-protests marching in circles like some sort of Scylla and Charybdis built on fear. I started going nuts halfway through. I sat in the local bar sketching the TV screen as this neon-haired embarrassment tried to crown himself as king. And through it all, I kept asking, how do you even draw something that's already a cartoon? (laughs) We live in this time of such flux and such contradictions. We are more connected, more able to communicate, to speak across borders, but with this connectivity comes economic ruptures and a dizzying sense of of dislocation. Many people around the world are turning to right-wing nationalism, to tribalism rooted in a fictitious past that excludes everyone not like them from their common definition of human. You see it in Turkey, you see it in Russia, you see it in, a, in this new France that persecutes Muslims. You see it in post-Brexit Britain, and you see it in Trump's vision of America. To fight this fear of the other, we must see each other clearly. We must see those people that power does not want us to see. And maybe this, this is why I keep believing in art and believing in certain archaic forms like the portraits. Yes, there are flaws with images, It is usually unjust and random the way one image is chosen over another. Images can play on sentiment. They can make people forget about systems and reduce everything to a single feel-good story. But they also stand a chance of breaking through compassion, fatigue, and indifference, of making people see each other as if for the first time. I started this speech by asking, can art change the world? It can't. The pen is not mightier than the sword, let alone the predator drone. But it can make you see, and seeing is the first step. Art can make you see defiantly and disobediently. Art can convince you to look at wounds and ugliness and also beauty in places that you have been told none exist. It can make you interrogate others, but most importantly, it can make you question yourself. Art can teach us to reject the lies that break people down into simple heroes or villains. It can make us reject the dangerous simplicity the media feeds us, and take a small step towards seeing the life and each other in all of our muchness. And that is why I still believe in drawing. We are crushed, shaped, and contorted by borders, wars, laws, and structures of power. Before we can improve anything, we must recognize our common humanity. Then we can demand rights for others and for ourselves. 
The Australian cartoonist First Dog on the Moon is in frequent touch with Ali, the cartoonist known as Eaton Fish. And I asked him to ask, ask Eaton Fish if he wanted to say anything to you. And he wrote the statement. Life is not only about eating and having a sleeping place. Every human should be able to choose to live how they like. In Manus, there are no signs of happiness. It's a very bad feeling to be trapped somewhere with nowhere to go and having to tolerate suffering. I used to complain about my situation, but I never got good results. So I decided to draw cartoons and show my condition. Doing the cartoons doesn't fix my hurt body. It doesn't fix anything. And so I ask again, does drawing have any help of changing things? And I don't know. But I know this. Maybe drawing can change nothing, but each drawing, each piece of art, can be one small crack in the walls of ignorance, of cruelty, and of cowardice. And maybe with enough cracks, those walls can start to come down. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. That was um, that was really beautiful, um, and both in seeing all the drawings and the beautiful line work and the crazy colour splash and everything, but also how how finely articulated it is what you do. Um, we'll be throwing open to questions now. Um, the person who is in possession of the microphone, you are there, okay, and two up there. But I would like to start off by just a couple, you know, start the ball rolling, I guess, by a couple of questions that, that occurred to me when listening. And that is, I'm fascinated by the fact that you're, you know, you're putting yourself in, in these difficult places. You're not going, I'm going to look from far away, I'm going to just read the news and draw, draw about things, which is what I knew. Um, you're actually going to a place, you're going to a prison camp or you're going to you know, um, uh, Guantanamo or whatever to see it and confront it. At what point do you feel yourself qualified to talk about these subjects of considerable complexity. Is that ever a, is that an issue for you? Oh God, always. I mean, I think any journalist who's honest with themselves will say that they never really feel expert on telling someone else's story because, because how can you? There's an infinite, an infinite history and an infinite amount of things to learn. And at what point have you ever learned enough? And even when you have a place like Guantanamo Bay, which has only been functioning as um, a prison camp for 14 years, it's a place where the actual truth of what's going on is in a certain sense unverifiable. Mm. And the reason is because everything is censored about it. Mm. And every single person who might talk to you about it is self-interested, from the military spokesman to uh, the defense attorney for the detainee to the former detainee to the guard who's turned into a whistleblower. Everyone has their own uh, version of the truth. And whether uh, what they're telling you is lies or whether it's distortions, or whether it's them trying to speak frankly, or it's just only what they've seen. Those are all dark mirrors to look at something through. Mm. And that's with something that's only, you know, 13 years old. Can you imagine trying to write about a 10,000-year-old country? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, um, it's fascinating to, to consider because, you know, you have to always question your own perspective and whether you're being sucked into to seeing something from one side or, or uh, you know, or whether there are another, uh, another ways to look at things. Um, another, another thing occurred to me, um, Molly told me that she has, uh, has learnt quite some Arabic and that is fascinating to me because I think that uh, the language at the time that we're living at the moment where, where uh, Islamic culture and, and, um, and uh, the Middle East is so such a flashpoint, uh, and everything we do is very much from our kind of Western perspective. Entering into that, into the language of the uh, the other, the feared other, has uh, has got to be, um, you know, an interesting, really interesting, and useful thing. You know, how much has it changed for you to have access with language? Oh, God. I mean, first of all, I want to qualify this by saying that I wish my uh, skills at Arabic were nearly as good as your skills at French. <laughs> I, uh, 
I can I can read and write it pretty okay. Um, my spoke my spoken part. Anyone who speaks it as native language is welcome to uh, get a good laugh with me after hearing listening to me speak afterwards. Uh, I started I started studying Arabic because I felt like a jerk uh, that I was writing about the Middle East and I didn't know the language and I thought like how silly would it be if someone came to America and decided to write about America and didn't speak any English except the word hello and was relying on conversations just with translators. Mm. So I, I started studying and then I, I just kind of fell in love with it and especially with uh, contemporary Arabic literature. I'm a big, big nerd. I was very, very burnt out and I wanted something that was incredibly, incredibly intellectually absorbing and demanding that wasn't necessarily about like writing an article and it's I don't know, the most beautiful, beautiful language, especially for poets like Darwish or Kobani. And yeah, I love it. And I'm a big nerd. I'll probably be very boring to anyone who's not a language nerd like me. It's, um, you know, we, in, in our country as well, um, we, don't, we don't sort of take total stock of the degree to which the, the majority of the world is... Um, is bilingual, at least bilingual. And that, as you talked about someone else that you met, you know, that, that spoke five languages and so on. You know, this is what happens. You go out into the world because speaking other languages is, is it's frankly useful. It's survival for a lot of people too. Um, what, uh, if there are some other questions, what would, uh, who else would like to ask questions of Molly? There are some hands up the back there. Um, you've obviously been on the front line, as the title is of this talk. Were there any moments where you felt like your safety was in danger? And, and what's the point where you decide this is too much of a risk and I need to back away from this situation? So I feel the need to like slightly qualify the um, the, the front line thing. I've definitely been to war zones before, but I have I have like photojournalist friends, especially who are like are literally standing next to someone while, while bullets are going by them. And I've I've never actually done that. I've I've been to places like Gaza when it was um, being lightly bombed. Uh, <laughs> lightly. <laughs> Just a little bomb. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, there are journalists who are astoundingly, astoundingly uh, physically courageous, and I don't think I would qualify myself as one of them. I've been to, you know, places where there's, like some, where there's some safety risk, certainly, but I'm, I'm not like a journalist like uh, my friend Mitch Prothero, who literally is, like, right there while, like, bullets are going by his head so we can get like some gorgeous black and white photo of something that I probably would have fainted if I was if I was if I was so close to our RPGs going off next to me but have you worn a hard hat no I have not worn a hard hat <laughs> but I but I feel like I feel like there's there's a little bit of a, 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 a I shouldn't I shouldn't say that but there's always this this slight irony when you see there there's a place that um you have like the TV journalist, you know, who's wearing a flak, a flak jacket and a hard hat and, um, you know, as they should, but then like none of the locals have anything and they're running around in flip-flops and, um, and t-shirts and it really brings home uh, the vast degree of, um, you know, safety um, journalists and also just Westerners generally have compared to the people that actually live there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're kind of averse to danger here. We don't have much of the uh, inshallah kind of mentality. I mean, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's that. Yeah. I, think, I think that generally, you know, flak jackets are really expensive. <laughs> that too. Another question. Um, I actually, have you been to Syria by any chance? I was once. I was there very briefly. I was just in Azaz. I actually backpacked through Syria in 2010, six months before the civil war started. So a lot of the images you showed were images that I've seen in person. I stayed for a week in Aleppo. I... I went through with the Aramaic church and, and all these places and the pity lies in the fact that Syria has basically gone, at least my generation, for my children, at least for the next hundred years, it will never come back to what it is. And what you said about Abu Dhabi struck a chord because I've lived in Abu Dhabi seven years. I actually moved, I moved back to Pakistan, I'm Pakistani. What you said, you had no idea how correct you were when you said about the blue-collar South Asian who, when they look at us, I'm from Pakistan, when they look at us, usually their first thing is extremely dismissive and followed by the, the Western privilege that their passport accords them. And so for what you said, um, I, it was just so amazing how very articulately you put it because it's the same thing everywhere in the UAE, sort of like, oh, you can speak English. Clearly I can, which is why I teach at school. Mm. Oh, okay, you, mm. you, but you're from Pakistan. Yep. Most of us do tend to go to college in the States, actually, mm. seven and a half years. So um, if you've been to the Abu Dhabi, what did you make of the Western privilege, which everyone sees, 
but they so blithely just ignore because they're Westerners and they feel, you know, it's just something. My ex-husband was told that you will have the same job as a Canadian, but you will be paid less because, the best part, because you're from a third world country, so your standard of living will be different as compared to a Canadian from the Western world. So I'd like that to sink into every person yeah. who sits over here so and to, how to frustrating sum, it is for us. To sum up, the, the question is it's about her observation how of how white you, privilege. Yes. It's, it's, some, it's something I actually um, spent quite a bit of time thinking about, and you're absolutely right. Um, I wrote in an article once that Abu Dhabi is like the last outpost of um, the great colonialist dream for white people, where no matter how much you've totally shat the bed in your home country, just the fact that you're white and you have a fancy passport will entitle you to like a really well-paying job and some servants mm-hmm. because it's like it's literally it's like the playground for like the mediocrities of the first world to get like really fancy jobs mm. Mm. do you know any good places to stay <laughs> <laughs> mm. do you have another question yes um it's a very feisty back row here, isn't it? Um, all questions from the back row. I'd love to know, um, is there something going on in the world now in 2016 that is not terribly well known about generally, but something that you would like to draw or investigate? What? Uh, oh, God, that's not generally terribly well known. Um, I have to admit, I, I feel like I'm on like a six-month time lag on the news cycle because I've been touring my book, and touring your book always puts you in this, like, basically this very luxurious and lovely um, bubble where I get to, you know, go on stage and talk to you, but it, it keeps, it does keep me in a certain way from doing my journalistic work, and so I, I always feel like I'm, like, see, I'm um, a little bit burnt out and seeing things on a bit of a delay. Um, I think, what would, what, would I, what would I do, I mean, that isn't being well covered? We could go to Nauru. I would love to go to Nauru. <laughs> But, I, but do they give visas to journalists now? No, or do they, they, no they, 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 that's, you know, thinking about that. The, only, the reason why we can only... The only things we find out are because of Eaton Fish in his communication with, uh, with First Dog are because it, it's $7,000. They made it to be $7,000 for, uh, for a visa to Nauru. For an application or for a visa? For, for, for a visa, but they don't necessarily approve. So basically, <laughs> journalists are prevented from going there. There's been a, one approved journalist who was going definitely, well, very likely, one would say, to give a favourable um, observation. But uh, no, it's very... It, it, it's, it is extraordinary. <laughs> and I've heard that they have that gag rule too, too right, for doctors and for anyone who, who's working there threatening them like with jail yep. time, right, if they yep. speak about it? Yep. So don't you think some artists going to Nauru would be a really, <laughs> really good expedition, great place to have a festival? Yes. <laughs> Hi. Um, so when you're drawing, obviously there's a certain abstraction that's going on in your mind. And then when you're writing, there's yet again another abstraction. And you were talking, as you were talking, you're talking about values and people and, you know, asylum seekers. And there's this whole universalism, right? So it's kind of like, do you kind of separate objectivity and trying to go for the truth? Or are you more geared towards the compassion side of humanity and, and being able to portray that for what it is as we live it, as we grow through it? That's a great question. It, it is a great question. And I think that those are, that's always a, a balance I try to struggle to keep. And I, I don't know if I always, I always get it right. I feel like I'm like <laughs> try, trying to hold, hold myself up on some side of that. When, I, when I'm drawing, it's a bit easier for me because I've been drawing since I was four and it's totally natural for me. And I, it's just, you, you know, things that you've just done so much, you're like, I know how I'm going to do this. I've only been writing professionally for four years and I, every article is a battle for me between um, trying to get the facts as best as I know it, but also uh, trying to contextualize those facts and see what they mean. Because you know, what you choose to include and what you don't choose to include, what perspectives you choose to trust and what you don't, say so much about you. I don't believe that there is an absolutely neutral eye that can, like, just, you know, see the world from some perspective, you know, that is, like, God. And um, I think it always depends on uh, where we stand. And the more you look at... um, you know, mainstream journalism critically, the more you realize that things that seem totally objective are actually quite anything but. So I try to get things right, and I try to be empathetic, and I, I always try to... Um, I try to tell stories that... Um, I try to tell stories that I think, um, I guess, will 
political drive with my ethics. For instance, I wouldn't necessarily choose to do a story about, um, I don't know, a young sex worker that was going to destroy her life afterwards. It just wouldn't be a story that I would take on, you know? And I was going to ask too, um, how did you make that first sort of jump from being the artist to being a journalist? I mean, you, you know, it's not very easy to turn up at a place and say, hi, I'd like to write articles for you, and I've never written one before in my life. So how did that, how did that transition happen? Two lucky breaks. Uh, first was I was friends with an amazing journalist named Laurie Penny, who spoke here last year. And we uh, wanted to do a project together because she really liked my art. And so we went to Greece together and we did an ebook called Discordia. And this was an amazing sort of apprenticeship because I got to like see how a really badass journalist works right up close. And I got to see how she was doing the interviews and then how the interviews got translated into the text. And also I saw how I would have done things differently in some ways. And I, I learned so much from her. Um, so that, that was my, my, first, my first thing. And then the second thing was I got arrested and I wrote an article afterwards about it that went viral. And mm -hmm. I got to write that article because I had been arrested and it was in the news. It wasn't because I was like a super genius writer. Mm -hmm. um, but once I had an article that was pretty well known, other people wanted me to write for them. Mm. So it's a, in a way, it's a, it, it's a fortunate thing to get to write when you're at a stage in your life when you have things to say. You know, it's sort of pity, pity the journalist who has to kind of start by writing about nothing or just doing the race results or whatever for years before they, before they you know, get to grow into it. But you've, you, you've been growing into it um, all the way along, I guess. I mean, I feel so lucky, though. I mean, a journalist who spends, you know, their apprenticeship covering you know, City Hall or um, probably has a better apprenticeship than anyone else in the world... You know, that sort of beat reporting is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And unfortunately, in the US at least, I don't know about Australia, is something that's being cut a lot. Mm, mm, definitely. Any more questions? Yes, there's a few more hands here. There's one to the front. Oh, she'll go first? Okay. Yeah. Hey. To the back. Um, you said something earlier while you were speaking uh, that I found really compelling, which is that most of the time, while we're aware of certain conflicts going on around the world, we don't really talk about it except for once or twice a year when there's a really powerful picture um, in print. And I was just wondering whether you found that there are any mediums that are particularly effective at getting people to pay attention outside of those one or two moments a year when there's a really big photo in the media? Or um, is there generally just a decline or unwillingness on our part to um, seek out this information and therefore there's less of it? But is there a way to break that chain so that instead of once or twice a year, people are paying attention to this um, more frequently? You know, I think it actually, uh, the people paying attention or not, it speaks to something um, bigger, which is the way that uh, information comes to us now, which is very different than it ever has. We live at a time where it's possible to learn about every conflict and crisis in the world to some degree, or not everyone, but, you know, certainly a vast, vast number of them, certainly more than any human being can feel compassion for at once, or any human being can follow up on in, in any sort of level of detail. And, it, you know, it all, it all comes to you, especially through um, the vast array of uh, information sources we have. But people aren't built to process that sort of level of, like, consumption of death and horror. It's, mm. it's, not, it's not really, I think, how people, how people are made. And so I almost don't know if it's that there has to be, like, more people looking at this thing or that thing or this thing, because we still, you know, are finite humans with only so many hours in the day as opposed to perhaps there are structural solutions that can make less of this terrible thing or that terrible thing happen. That's a really important point too, that, you know, there, there's, there, is, there are limits to what you can carry and even for you, you know, you would, you would be, you know, uh, bending under the weight sometimes of, of what you're finding out about and, uh, and processing yourself and needing to um, step away from it sometimes too, I should think. I, that's why Arabic poetry and drinking. Right. <laughs> A tip. Um, the next speaker, this woman here. Yeah, hi. So um, I'm interested in, I mean, you seem really well um, informed politically and also journalistically, um, having been to journalism school and all the time that you've spent on the front lines. 
my question is, correct me if I'm wrong, you said that you hadn't been to an art school. And so then how do you keep yourself informed artistically to keep evolving and challenging your practice as you keep up politically and journalistically with those things as well? Well, I've actually, I've never been to journalism school, um, the, but I am, um, and I dropped out of art school. So I, I actually, I'm a terrible student. It's like just a lifelong, <laughs> a lifelong flaw. Uh, you did some time at the art school, though. I did, but it was, it was the Fashion Institute of Technology. I'm not going to credit them with anything. <laughs> <laughs> like I, the Ponzi Institute. <laughs> I, um, for art, well, I... For a lot of my friends are artists. Uh, my partner is an artist. I um, I also just like love to look at artists. Like, and people, like I don't know. When you draw pictures, I'm sure you find this. People are like, "Look at this cool person I found," and they tell they tell you about them, and then mm. uh, you know you know about them. Like Chitta Prasad, I found out because my editor at the Guardian was like, "Have you seen this artist? Uh, this is someone whose work reminds me." Or else, I don't know, Twitter. I feel like Twitter is this like, great maw of every like, good and terrible bit of information in the world. And if you just kind of tune it correctly, you can like, find really amazing artists. Mm. And then also I keep a sketch pad. That's, that's, and I, I have all this... Um, I, I'm one of those people, you know when you go into the art supply store and you think like, oh, if I just buy this, I'm going to magically learn how to do like, you know, like Chinese <laughs> brush painting and uh, frescoes. It's just going to happen if I buy this. So I have all this like art supplies I don't use. And, um, <laughs> and then I every so often like I that. dig into my like giant, my giant stack of art books and I'm like, and I dig into my giant stack of unused art supplies and I'm like, yeah. I should put these together. <laughs> Uh, my my parents' best investment was was they think they got persuaded to buy some of those Reader's Digest books of of artists of Von, Van Gogh and and Picasso and and everybody and I just used to sit there looking at those just looking and studying those those pictures and and um, you know without without being aware that I was studying or or, or, or learning it was just the, the the fascination of the of the imagery and I think when you're when you're a visual person that um, you kind of can't can't help. Oh God! Absorb that. And even like stuff like old packaging, like everything. I, I don't know. There's there's just something like about beautiful things out in the world. When I was in Melbourne, I I was in. I, I even like went to the zoo and I was like drawing all the wombats and stuff. And I was like I was like looking at. And then if someone on Twitter told me that uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the Pre-Raphaelite painter, had a pet wombat, and he uh, anyway, I like this is how like I get influenced. Yes. Um, there's another question up I think, there. Uh, yes, we've got a couple up there. Hi, Molly. Great. Hi. Um, I just had a question about medium. Um, so you write and you draw pictures. Have you ever considered doing comics journalism or something like that? Is that something you would consider doing? You know, I tried to do a graphic novel when I was younger, and I realized that I didn't have the work ethic for it. That's honestly the, fr the frankest explanation. Like, as someone who's doing a, a graphic novel, it's about nine illustrations a page, and as opposed to, like, the mere one illustration a page that I get by doing prose that's illustrated. And I, I just realized I was like, my God. I look at Joe Sacco, and, like, my, line, my hand compassionately aches for, like, every line that he did. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just too much for me, that's all. But, like, God bless like them. It's public service for artists, isn't it? Doing yeah. Comic, strip, you know, you know, being, oh. being stipended. And <laughs> I, think, uh, the, I think she uh, has her hand up for a yes, while. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We're going you. okay. We've still got some time. Uh, I'd like to know, you said that art can make cracks in the walls of ignorance, but what do you make of art that perhaps uh, reinforces ignorance or stereotype? Good question. It, you know, it's, it's... You shouldn't do it. I mean... <laughs> I mean, art, art is a medium just like anything else, just like, you know, writing or films, and it can be used you know, to do really amazing things, or it could be used to promote racism and jackassery, and I guess I feel the same the way that I would towards it as I would towards, like, racist or crap articles. Artistic ta talent rains down on the, on the just and the unjust, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I had a question, Molly. First of all, thank you so much for living your life on the front line and for dedicating your life for bringing cracks into the walls of humanity. I'm encouraged and inspired by you because I'm a female and I'd love to live my life on the front line. So I guess my question ties in with that, that how do you get to these places? Are you invited or do you go on your own accord? And secondly, do you think it's wise as, I guess, a Westerner or even a female to go to these places and put ourselves out there? Because I'm in... Like, can I do more from... Like you said, you do art, but you, you, you're from almost like a safe place, whereas you go into the front line. But what if something happens to you? Like, I mean, 
I think there, there, there are two, two questions there. I mean, in terms of is it wise, uh, no, no, it's not. Mm. I mean, but there are all sorts of like amazing, wonderful things in the world that aren't prudent or wise that you could you know, end up dying in. And also you could also end up dying in a car accident too. Mm. Um, and I think that um, bad things happen to uh, men in war zones too very, very often. And bad things happen to locals more than Westerners, you know, by, yeah. by, by many, many, many folds. Um, in terms of how I how I get to places, it, it depends. Uh, something like Guantanamo Bay is a military junket. Like that, that is you're flown down on a military plane with a bunch of other journalists. With a place like Abu Dhabi, I went in on a tourist visa. I had uh, connections that I had set up through um, an activist, uh, or like not an activist, an NGO group. And um, then I, I met those people, and I, I ended up uh, sneaking onto construction sites or going going to like labor camps in the middle of the desert, and we just you know, drove out and. Um, the like amazing uh, young construction worker who was with us translated for me and was just like, he made up in the vast magnitudes of charm and intellect that he had, he made up for all of my many deficiencies, um, at least in the first area. And in a place like, um, you know, a lot of times there in foreign journalism, there is um, this role that's very demeaningly called a fixer, but would actually um, be much more accurately called a producer, which is usually a, a very talented and well-connected, um, sometimes local journalist and sometimes just a, like, a, like a producer, like a talented and well-connected person. And that person very often can introduce you to things if you have an idea for a story and they'll translate for you as well. And then also, you know, when you keep going back to a place over and over again, you start to meet people and you start to make connections and... From, from the, that, you uh, start to get a sense of what's going on. For other stories, like a, a U.S. prison story, for instance, uh, my biggest story on that, I met the mother of one of the prisoners, and she's like this amazing woman, like amazing activist for her son. And through her, I, um, I started writing to the prisoners, and um, eventually they um, agreed to do the story with me, uh, put me on their visiting list, and just drive out into the middle of nowhere on visiting day, and you say like, hey. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it, you know, a lot of things you just, it's just, you just get into, you just get someone, you need to make friends that drive. That, that's a yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, do we have another question? Yes. Um, I, I just got the impression, I might be wrong, but somehow Occupy Wall Street movement sort of morphed a bit into all this support for Bernie Sanders. And I think what's been really exciting about that is it sort of energised young people. And I just wondered what your thoughts were about whether young, the young vote will come out against Trump in the November election and whether that's sort of an optimistic... Um, bodes well for the future in terms of young people getting involved again in politics in the States. I hope it does. Um, I, I don't really desire to live in a Trump America. However, I think that the flip side of the excitement that Bernie Sanders got was that uh, the corruption in the DNC against him and um, the real way that he was crushed and um, even that the, you know, almost almost 50% of the party that did back him was marginalized and ignored and in some way like really looked down on is something that could hurt the voter turnout. I think that uh, the Democrats made a real mistake because they seem to think that we're still living in the same old, you know, kind of neoliberal order where it's totally fine to just be a corporate shill, but actually large swaths of the world, not just America, aren't interested in that anymore. And uh, Trump is pandering to those people. And I think that if the Democrats don't learn to speak a more populist language, they're going to lose to racist demagogues. I hope, I hope that that's not true, but mm-hmm. I think that that's a danger at the very least. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess the, um, the idealism that uh, may have, you know, garnered this support for, for Sanders... It wasn't for Hillary. It wasn't for Hillary, and, it's a, and it can be a dangerous idealism because it, because it turns... When, when, the, when the, the, the source of the idealism is, is um, you know, revealed to be imperfect, then, then um, the, you know, the, 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 it turns... Opinion turns cruelly often. I, I mean, I don't feel like it's cruelly turned against Bernie, but I feel like it um, might not be able to be harnessed uh, by Hillary and harnessed by the DNC mm. in the way that they would hope. Yeah. I think we have another one here, and uh, that's probably going to be wrapping it up. Uh, you you uh, had an amazing talk about basically the censorship from above, 
from the government, from corporations, from wherever. But what are your thoughts on the censorship from within, uh, from uh, within many American institutions, the idea of safe spaces uh, and trigger warnings? So uh, trigger warnings is really just a way of saying, like, I realize a lot of people here might have PTSD, so... I don't want to um, set it off. I have a lot of friends who are veterans, who are war reporters, who don't like people to come up behind them and touch them. It makes them really upset, and so we don't do it. I mean, I don't find trigger warnings to be censorship because they're warnings. Whether or not I think they're often silly is another thing, but there's lots of room for silly things in this world Mm. that I don't like, you know, feel superly passionately pro. In terms of safe spaces, I mean... You'll have to, you'll have to um, help me a little bit on this because, as I said, I didn't graduate college and I don't spend much time in them. Okay. Um, but I, if a safe space is just a room where a bunch of women can go and talk, that no one is censoring you by not saying that you're allowed in the room any more than they're censoring you by saying that you're not allowed to hang out in their living room. Okay. Yeah. I'm afraid this is, that's going to be a topic for another time because we've run out of time now and it is a very big and deep, deep topic also for exploration. But at, right now I'd like everybody to thank Molly Crabapple for thank talking you. with us today. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.